For June 18th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 520, The Cookie and the Demon Baby. to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are like a band of cognitive superheroes. We've been driven underground, but we're back, baby, and we are overthinking uh, better than ever. We're, we're like your, your virtual smart, funny friends from the internet, because you don't want to have friends in real life. You don't want to talk with anyone in real life. You do it through your screen or through your, uh, through your device, and and uh, I'm very glad that you do. We are here to talk with you about Incredibles 2, the long-awaited sequel to uh, The Incredibles. Well, it wasn't a franchise before, but now it is, and uh, I'm sure there will, there will be more to come. Uh, I'm Matt Rather. I'm joined by Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. And I'm joined by Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hey, Matthew. All right. So uh, those things were uh, sort of sly references to things that uh, happened in in Incredibles 2. We're going to be spoiling this film, but, uh, you know, I think it did okay. Judging by how full my Sunday afternoon 3.30 p.m. screening was, uh, I think this film has done okay. So, like, odds are, if you're you're listening to this, you you, uh, are likely to have have seen it. Let's start because I think this is this is a more difficult movie. And as we were chatting, uh, as we were chatting before the movie, um, it's difficult to kind of zero in on what this film is about. So let's go back to what Incredibles One is about. Spoilers, I suppose, for Incredibles One. So Incredibles One is about a family with superpowers in a world where superpowers have been sort of outlawed, driven underground uh, because of the um, the destruction attendant on their superheroics and uh you know they have to live as a normal family they have to in, in other words they have to kind of commit to their um to their cover identities forever and ever and then they uh you know through a series of events they become super again they end up fighting a, a villain whose name is syndrome uh, he's got a plan to make everyone super so that when everyone is super then no one will be super he had been a fan of the supers before but but not super himself. And, um, you know, the idea, uh, the idea is that we can kind of make everybody the same. The key line for me in Incredibles one is, um, is when Mr. Incredible says, uh, they keep coming up with new ways to celebrate mediocrity. And that's, uh, it's, it's, I think someone brings home a participation ribbon or something like that. And it's like, uh, uh, it's a little bit that the, um, the question is about, uh, it, is this just about millennials, a, a, a kind of tired commonplace complain about millennials and how they get trophies for just showing up? Or is there something more here? Is there something more profound about democracy? We want a world with equality, but we want a world with diversity, right? Um, we want the, the, what, the justice of equality, but the excitement and richness of diversity. But another word for diversity is inequality. And when people have sort of extraordinary abilities, I mean, the, the film asks, the, uh, when people have extraordinary abilities, what, um, how do you maintain civil society? How do you maintain an enlightenment democracy uh, in an atmosphere of, of you know, heightened individuality? Um, do you feel like that's a fair assessment, Pete, of the, the first Incredibles? I think it, it, there's something in that film that's about democracy and about, uh, uh, about individualism. Yeah, I think so. I, I would draw attention to the idea, which is underneath both the Incredibles movies and everything else, that the Incredibles are a reimagining of Marvel's Fantastic Four, the classic superhero family. And I would posit that they are reimagined with respect to how what's the perspective by which superpowers are assigned to each person. So in the Fantastic Four, it's basically Fantastic Four, but everybody moves over one spot and they make one little change. So in the Fast Fantastic Four, you're right, you have Mr. Fantastic, who's the dad, and he's flexible, he's stretchy. Then you have uh, the Invisible Woman 
who is the mom, and she can do the force fields and she's invisible. And then you have the uncle, who's the strong guy, and that's Thing. And then you have Johnny Storm, who is the human torch, and he's the sort of younger, he's the younger brother. He's like the kid. Well, then they have this child, Franklin Richards, who is like amazing powers that are vaguely defined and and full of potential. And that's sort of another dynamic to it. But but the idea, I think, is that the Fantastic Four's powers are identified by what external society sees and values from these people. So, you know, Mr. Fantastics is flexible because his mind is flexible and he's able to do science and he's able to come up with creative solutions to problems and he's a leader and he's able to deal with complex situations. So that makes him flexible. Ben Grimm is strong and and resilient and he's the kind of tough guy. He was in the gang. You know, he's a military-ish kind of guy. So society sees him that way and so that's how his superpower kind of comes about, et cetera, et cetera. And with The Incredibles, they sh- they move it over one and I think it's better to see it as – each member of the Incredibles has a superpower that lines up with the way that they see themselves, what they value yeah. about themselves, how they would mm-hmm. seek to actualize themselves. Yeah, exactly. I'm reminded, it's much yeah. more internal. It's much more about the, the individual self-conception rather than yeah. the, the sort of social conception. Yeah, exactly. And it reminds me of in terms of docu- uh, d- democracy, it reminds me back during the very late years of the Cold War, when wait, back in the 80s, before, you know, 91, before even 89 in the fall of the Berlin Wall, where one of the things that I remember as a kid learning about what made democracy better than communism was that, uh, or at least, you know, we didn't call it capitalism better than communism, you know, it was more like democracy better than communism, was that you have the freedom to choose your own job. Right. The idea that in a in a government command economy, your job gets assigned by the government, whereas in a representative democracy, you get to follow your passions and your talents and you get to change. If your parents were one job, you get to be a different job. And and I think about this idea. It doesn't really get out there very much because the idea of choosing jobs is less of a real feeling that people have these days. I think. <laughs> um, uh, the, but also the idea that like you could join a trade of this sort or that sort is kind of less of an economic option for a lot of people. Uh, but but the point being that uh, this is making a sort of argument that that superheroism is about taking what you're passionate about and what you're good at and and that those two things might align with each other and encouraging you to push yourself to the limits and do the best that you can at the thing that you think that you are good at uh, and that this in and of itself is not bad. Uh, it's it's more of the Harrison Bergeron approach, right? We've talked about Vonnegut a little bit recently, but it's it's sort of like a Harrison Bergeron approach to like where the government is kind of handicapping people in this short story by Kurt Vonnegut by like strong people get weights attached to them and smart people have to have music played in their ears so that they're confused all the time. The idea being that you'll make everybody equal by limiting people's talents and skills and that talents and skills are part of what makes you special and that this is rooted in markets for labor where you know you go and you try to you know, figure out what you want to do in the context of what you can get for it rather than a top down approach to everybody working at the job that's assigned to them. Uh, That's how I would identify it, although it is the Twilight Zone is very present, especially in Incredibles 2 as like a sort of terror story about conformity. Oh, yeah. Uh, The TV. Okay, stick a pin in that because we've got to come back to that. Yeah, exactly. Johnny Quest. (laughs) <laughs> and the idea that like you know who who is the um edna is another big weird character weird freaking character in the incredibles <laughs> voiced by the writer director uh less offensive this time around than last time although last time it was 14 years ago so people's senses were different about these sorts of things i guess but uh but just the idea I mean, that white like, people's senses were different about yeah these exactly. sorts of there's less general awareness of a sort of the offensiveness of a half german half japanese fashion designer who's apparently based on a real person who is no longer with us i believe but but the idea being that like the outdoor fashion designer who's hugely eccentric to the point of sort of yoko ono levels of kind of performance art as life uh, uh, or life as performance art, both and both and if and only if uh, that that person is essential in the universe of heroism because they li- li- walk to only the beat of their own drum and not to anybody else's. And that's kind of what super being a superhero is by necessity all about. Uh, that's what I would say is is a big chunk. We're we're articulating right now a big chunk of the Incredibles one. And one of the big problems with the Incredibles one is the little kid who gets fixated on Mr. Incredible instead of on himself. And that creates this sort of chicken bone in his psyche that warps him into this evil person that begrudges other people their uniqueness. 
because he didn't get to actualize his own uniqueness uh, because of the way that he sort of appealed to the parental figure and was rejected. Yeah. As, as a side uh, note, that really prophesied uh, the rise of the uh, trollish internet aggrieved fanboy <laughs> yeah. by like a solid like 10 years so kudos yeah. to that Incredibles. Oh, that uh, and also but, machine learning putting people out of work is another thing that impressed <laughs> but anyway go ahead Mark. <laughs> so um, if if uh, to address the, the tension that Matt was talking about before right with the, how do you have a democracy when you have um, these outsized uh, super powered uh, individuals um, it doesn't really answer that. I mean, it gives a bit of a cop out answer in that everybody should self actualize according to be the best version of themselves. And you could be super in your own way. Um, uh, is that a cop out? Uh, is that what the movies go with the reverse Incredibles goes for? Or is it to try to do something beyond that? Well, there's family really Mark, it's a movie about family. <laughs> just like just like, uh, just like this podcast you know really it's, yeah. uh, really everything is about i mean it's about family um uh, yeah jordan once wrote his th- wrote a thing on the site or maybe said something to us about how workplace sitcoms always become family sitcoms right and uh this this i think this sort of treads that that line as well right like are they um, are they a family who who does who does their duty uh, right? Who like suits up and and goes into battle, or are they a team right who cohabits? And I think that the emphasis on sort of parenting and the parents being available to kind of solve the the kids' problems um, is uh, you know leans it towards towards the former. But like, yeah, I mean, I I think there are. I don't know. I, I don't think that that the film. I think the film kind of highlights attention more than it 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 proposes a, a resolution. Yeah, I mean the, the family piece resonates most with me, right? Like this is this movie is concerned about its problems within the scope of the family, right? And it's not trying to describe a, an ideal social order. I think this movie, yeah. I mean, Incredibles one, Incredibles two might be doing something a little bit different, though. I would say that Incredibles one belongs in. A consideration of the social order wherein the social order is kind of incomprehensibly big, and there is not this assumption. There's an assumption that's pretty common that the social order is something that people can change, um, which is, you know, optimistic. But um, the idea that like you yourself, right, what, more like what's the relationship between the individual and the social order? Is it something that you learn that you try to fix or is it something that you try to learn to live in context of? And I think that the question that Incredibles one answers is if this is the kind of reality of things that if if the way that you live is that. You know, you want to be part of a democratic society, but you can't because your voice is not valued. There's something about that experience that makes you feel kind of sick and makes things wrong for you and makes things feel bad for you. And and so the transformation in The Incredibles is from a state of unwellness to a state of wellness with regards to with the relationship to others. But I don't necessarily think that it expands to the point where the Incredibles themselves are assumed to have had a practical effect. I mean, yes, they have a practical effect on the rest of the world because you kind of expect that everything else is going to be okay. But there's nothing in the first Incredibles movie about that mechanism. And I guess the second Incredibles movie is about that mechanism and I think suffers for it a little bit. Well, go on. Uh, let's, it, let's, yeah. let's, let's switch over and pivot. What do you, yeah. what do you think about that? Well, so like the second Incredibles, so the first Incredibles movie deals with the problem of the Incredibles were superheroes. That was a big part of who they were, supers. They're not supers anymore. This makes them feel bad and sick. The the dad gains a lot of weight. He's probably pre-diabetic. The mom is pretty strained and angry all the time. Right? She's yelling at her kids to not yell. There's a whole cycle of, of potential emo- and emotional the, and abuse the, that's getting the, the cycle of abuse continues. <laughs> and then they realize, oh, if we just kind of do our super thing, then we're much healthier. And it reminds me of the scene in Cobra Kai where uh, Danny LaRusso's wife, the karate kid's wife, says, like, look, I don't know what you got to do. Take a cross-country motorcycle trip. Whatever you want to do, I want to have my own my old Daniel back. And what that is is it's the clue for the karate kid to go back to karate because that's why he's called the karate kid because he has to do karate to be happy. Um, and so that's the idea. But at the end of The Incredibles, they feel good, but the world still prohibits superheroes. And then The Incredible 2 is saying, okay, the Incredibles feel good about who they are, but the world needs to be brought up to speed. And then this is saying, okay, how do individuals relate to each other in order to influence the world? 
How do how do the influence how do and what roles because it takes as a granted that no one individual person has all the capabilities and skills necessary to change the fundamentals of their situation. And yet at the same time, uh, you can't necessarily limit or or uh, you can't necessarily limit the individual to merely a role in the collective because then you also don't have any individual will in anything. Right. So there's this weird idea of specialization and comparative advantage in The Incredibles, too, wherein like everybody having the same role is presented as inferior to people having kind of different roles. But at the same time, the idea of people having different roles is interrogated. And there's like philosophical discussion of whether it's good or bad that different people are valued differently for doing different jobs. Uh, I mean, I guess that's a lot to say, but but to really simplify it, it's basically saying who is more valuable in the improvement of the world? People who have vision and who are able to create or people who are able to convince others to do the, what they want. Right. And, and and then this sort of di- dichotomy collapses when you have a mind control technology that's introduced. So the dichotomy between what what Malcolm Gladwell would call what, like the maven and the connector, right? Like uh, which we've brought up a couple of times from the tipping point. Uh, right. Or like, the, I guess, the salesman. Right. These different roles in the sort of passage of trends and change that there's somebody who comes up with the change and then there's somebody who socializes the change. And uh, and and that it's no one person can do both jobs um, unless you're you've got technology that forces people to not be people. And that's bad. I mean, I guess that's where I come to it, but it feels inadequate to the okay, task. So so a couple of things about that. Like, what, what do you think? Well, OK, a couple of questions I want to raise uh, before I launch off on on a monologue. Guys, get a drink of water because it's gonna be like 20 <laughs> to 22 minutes. Um, Great, awesome. Yeah, I really have to pee. Um, uh, What what do you think of the critique of technology? It's put in the mouth of the bad guy, but it also seems like the sort of thing that Mr. Incredible would say, you know, about these kids today and their their cell phones or whatever. And the kind of the retrofuturistic aesthetic of the Incredibles, I think, is ambivalent about the the, uh, awesomeness versus destructive potential, socially destructive potential like bowling alone type of destructive potential of technology at the core uh, of Pixar's DNA. Like Pixar is, is a company that had associated with it uh, in its early life, Steve jobs, right? Right. And Steve jobs had a partner called Steve Wozniak and they founded Apple computer together. And the, I, I, to a certain extent, I feel like that dichotomy, right. Is the, you know, is kind of the primal scene of the dichotomy though, though in Incredibles two, it has a, a gender dynamic mapped onto it. Um, and kind of a sibling thing, which involves kind of rivalry and, uh, kind of carving out different identity spaces or, or, or things like this, right? Like the idea of the, the sort of engineer, I guess that's the maven, right? And, And the, the sort of reclusive, like monastic, um, sort of purist, dedicated person, and then the 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 public face, the the connector, or the the showman, or you know what have you, right? Like there's a um, you know the car needs an engine, and the car needs a, a shiny coat of paint as well, and that's how cars that's how cars function well. And so I think just just something like even though like Pixar is a is a Disney company now, and that that comes with its own kind of freighted set of mythological connotations, I think that this is an important one for for Incredibles too, and and how it works, and especially especially since like the the who is the biggest, who is the most profitable screen slaver. Of of all you know (laughs) (laughs) right um and it's uh how how do we how do we get controlled you know and how do we um uh how do we get manipulated right by ai uh by machine learning that's taking people's jobs away uh what is what is the vehicle for that well in in large part it comes from apple computer or apple now apple incorporated not not computer um and it just uh you know and and we carry it around in our pocket i thought you were gonna say that the 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 biggest screen slaver is disney Right, because they produce the content, which Apple doesn't do quite yet, although the uh, side tangent, uh, they're going to team up with Oprah uh, to really slave us to our screens. Um, but to backtrack to what you were saying earlier about the Wozniak jobs dynamic, um, that does help explain a little bit 
more about the um, the origin story for the, those siblings and, and how they came to their different p- positions, right? The, the whole thing where the the robbers came to their house and uh, the, the, the daughter or the sister wanted to retreat within, go to the safe room. The brother wanted to go out, or the father, right, wanted to go out and call the supers to come and help, uh, but none of them came. And so they took different uh, lessons from that, right? The, the, the sister, uh, well, something's more self-reliant, with, withdrawal within, don't be dependent on others, and then the, the, the brother, the opposite of that. Now, um, that it didn't really make for an effective uh, or at least cohesive um, mission statement for that pair, and it, the whole thing was presented in a pretty muddled way. But I did also want to, in the context of screen slaving and what we're talking about, sort of media and control, bring up the odd fact, and we alluded to this earlier, that Jack-Jack loves television and yeah. watches Johnny. Uh, and, and the various other television programs keep popping up. But Jack-Jack gets escapes, turns on the TV, and starts to watch what? The, the Twilight Zone? First, Johnny Johnny Quest, I think you were going to say, right? Johnny Quest, he watches at one point, but he yeah. totally watches The Twilight Zone at one point, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What is going yeah. on with that? Or, because that's not really presented as, like, a, an, 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 uh, an evil, right? There's not, like, the, the hand-wringing over a screen time like we have uh, in, in 2018. Um, again, the retrofuturism helps um, uh, sanitize that a little bit. It's not some sort of, like, you know, horrible, evil, th- terrible thing that the kid is watching TV at. At, at 1 a.m. It's more just like the kid got out and that's the problem. Um, but it, it it speaks again to the incoherence of the movie. And uh, you guys are probably better at like uh, at least offering a theory for how all those fits together. But I'm really struggling, too. Yeah, I think that the one of the lines that really stuck with me was when the Revenge of the Waz character, which is just such a great way of thinking about this movie. Thank you for giving me that gift, Matt. That this is a that this is a movie about the evil revenge of Steve Wozniak, and um, how uh, she says that. Of course, you shouldn't have trusted me. You don't know anything about who I am. And there's a popular discursive phenomenon, discourse drink, wherein we talk about what technology and automation are going to do to the world as if the computers really do have their own will and are not being deployed by human beings in the service of things. Uh, Even if you were to calculate, for example, the amount of productivity in an economy that comes from people versus comes from automation, it's an exercise in question begging because you can always aggregate the productivity of the automation to whatever person is ultimately responsible for the automation. Like to to an extent, if you owned the world's best learning computer, that productivity all accrues to you, not necessarily to the computer. Like it's a tool. It's a tool that you're using, right? And so we think of things like the screen slaver as being these in in the real world, right? As being these abstract notions of scary technology. Uh, but what we forget is that there's a real person that's behind it and that that real person is probably somebody we don't know, probably not the person that they say they are and has an agenda and wants us to think and feel certain things that uh, are in their interest and not ours. So that is part of the screen slavers M.O. is to be this kind of a troll farm meme war agent who has unknown provenance. Uh, but uh, but but is in service of something and you don't know what it is. Oh, my God. But it's then- a movie about QAnon. <laughs> sorry. Ah, oh sorry. But walk I, past walk past but, Do not but if i wonder if i wonder if part of the more affectionate relationship that jack jack has with the tv is that they are he watches known things and trusted things johnny quest is not just anybody like they show you the characters from johnny quest which are like very related to the aesthetic of the incredibles and in the the twilight zone and rod serling is a known quantity he's not just watching scrambled porn he's not just watching like late night cable (laughs) and like stumbling on the 700 club and like wondering who they are and like being like oh this is fun right like no he's watching like very very well-known things he's watching cowboy stuff at one point i think Right. So it's like it's so on one hand, you could read this as an endorsement of the known over the unknown with regards to technological entertainment. But you could also read it as the the means by which entertainment was broadcast back in the day in the sort of the period of the Incredibles in the mid 20th century created a false because it had to be a one to many broadcast. It created the false impression that 
technology coalesced into like well-known brands just by its nature, right? Specifically technology and media, that Disney was Disney, that, that, uh, that you could trust that the thing that you were seeing belonged to the channel and the characters that were associated with it as opposed to something else. And then the new weird, scary world, the ability to, to communicate with media has been decoupled from the ownership of intellectual property and the establishment of brands. So it, maybe it's kind of an anti-piracy movie in that respect, but we're pretty deep in the weeds. Well, in did, that, you, in the did you get the, did you get the, I thought it was going to be an anti-piracy message at the beginning. Did you get the live action video with Sam yes. Jackson and Holly Hunter and, and Craig T. Nelson yeah. and all those people saying like, Hey, it was, there's so many people who work on this movie. I thought that was going to be one of those, like all these American jobs depend on you, not torrent anything not not downloading yeah. anything ever i thought it was going to be one of those but it ended up being like sorry it took all this time to get it back to you uh but but yeah. enjoy it now you know is it also like we're really sorry that our producer just got fired for rampant sexual misconduct over the course of years please ignore that his name is in the credits yeah. and that's not really what it was about but because when i saw that i thought the same thing this is a sort of thank you for coming to the movies rather than watching it at home on netflix or thank you for coming to the movies rather than pirating it to a softer degree uh but it also it just really seemed to communicate that this was a difficult project for them yeah that there was something tough about making the incredibles too and i yeah. think it, it feels tough this feels feels like a hard movie. This is a challenging movie. This is not an easy movie. This was not a slam dunk, I think, uh, in any respect. But that video really was interesting. I mean, reinforcing it's been 14 years. And for some reason, the movie picks up exactly where the last one left off. Right. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, Yeah. That's really I mean, it's really interesting. Right. Like the the. well, I you know I don't know, Mark. Mark, you haven't had a had a uh, chance to to chime in yet too much. How, what do you, what do you think of the the political and sociological and and uh, uh, philosophical implications of The Incredibles too? I I think that they're they're tough to suss out, right? Yeah. Let's let's pick up pick on another thing we haven't quite yeah. uh, dis- addressed yet. Um, the somewhat throwaway line: makes superheroes legal again." <laughs> right. That is no accident. Right. It is clearly a reference to make America great again. The horrible, horrible catchphrase of horrible, horrible President Donald Trump. Um, I think and as a it's a catchphrase. It's actually proven to be pretty effective. That's OK. <laughs> Point taken. Yeah, it's Touché. not it's not a horrible catchphrase. It's a horrid catchphrase. And that's okay, a it, it is. A, it is. A, OK, it is a horrid catchphrase. OK, just to break this down for a second. All right. The reason why I make America great again is horrid as opposed to horrible um, reason why it's horrid it because it uh, hides uh, all sorts of uh, d- discussing terrible ideas behind it. Right. Um, that America was, quote unquote, great in the past because it was great just for white people and without immigrants and uh, and all these other terrible uh, multicultural things that have come about over the last, like, say, 50 years or so. Um, that same idea doesn't really map onto make supers legal again, uh, nor does the uh, the the Bob Odenkirk character who who says that phrase. Does he really map onto Trump in any way at all, other than the fact that the, the two of them are, quote unquote, salesmen? Um, it just yeah. like really, really bothered me that this line was put out there and not fleshed out in any way at all. I guess maybe I should also be like, partly glad that this uh, Incredibles 2 wasn't uh, like. Uh, some sort of allegory about Trump, because God knows we've got enough of those um, floating around our pop culture these days. But uh, that was to me is like a really good uh, encapsulation of the lack of coherence to the political message of this movie. Uh, Matt, Pete, any thoughts on make supers legal again? MSLA doesn't have the same <laughs> ring as MAGA does. Uh, I mean, I have a slightly different read of MAGA in the sense that I see it as kind of also geared towards notions of conquest and and the idea of sort of national aggression. So not just it's not necessarily just a Davy Crockett catchphrase, but it's also about papering over large structural problems with the notion that by being uh, angry and by being hostile, you will improve your standing of everybody, right? And then this and this manifests in things like wars and, and stuff like that. And that it just feels like the kind of belligerence that is not to be trusted. I think that, that that's that's maybe the big the clue, perhaps, 
is not necessarily what it means specifically. Like, you know, the idea of, you know, the America first stuff has a very definitive history. Uh, a lot of people aren't aware of it. But once you are aware of it, it's the kind of thing you can't unsee, right, that you're using specific disc. And we believe a lot in overthinking it, I think, in the historical relations of discourses that you can't necessarily comp- you know, repeat the same sentence and have it be have no association from the second time you said it to the first time you said it. And so when you say things that white supremacists were also saying back in the day, like that associates you with white supremacy. But at the same time, there's a lot of people who are not aware of what that what that connection and don't see it and don't know that it's there. Uh, and I think that that maps onto the screen slaver plot pretty well in the sense that the guy who is selling his Batman Adam West the movie plot which is let's get all the world leaders onto a boat, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think is also a plot of an episode of Tailspin. I'm not sure, but uh, actually it's a little different. It's all the magnates of industry that get on the spruce moose in that one. Uh, but it's it's basically, they're not going to dehydrate them, but they are going to put them all under mind control. This is a very Adam West Batman kind of plot. And uh, But the guy who's gathering everybody and serving as the guy who's selling this to everybody has no idea what he's selling. He is not... He does not know what's what the ultimate goal of what he's doing is. He is taking pleasure in the fact that he is the salesman. And and he's I actually what, got childish yeah. impulses as well, right? His his childish love of superheroes, and he loves that he's bringing them all together, and he's uh, giving them this moment uh, I mean, to, of glory. To an extent, if you want to see it from the villain's perspective, if you see it from the villain's perspective, what he's doing is he's acting like a child because he is repeating. He is like looking. He is like repeating meaningless things as platitudes in order to convince people to do stuff that is unrealistic and is actually in the service of his enemies. Well, that's but right, she offers this, uh, uh, you know reasonably compelling psychological read of what he's doing right like yeah, uh yeah. the yeah. parents went away at the time that the superheroes went away and so he thinks that the two are the you know that poor little poor little bugger never realized that the two things aren't related yeah and but if you see it from the perspective of the heroes the problem is that is that he and his sister don't trust each other <laughs> right and that that in the Incredibles, if if the idea, if the problem between Steve Wozniak and Elastigirl is that they, Elastigirl trusts Steve Wozniak without knowing who she is, then the advantage of the Incredibles is that they can trust each other because they know who each other are, and they can also trust Frozone, you know, plus Uncle Frozone, and uh, and as long as they can do that, they can work together more effectively towards a common goal that they all understand, which in this case is something right like is is stop the stop the drill machine from destroying city hall right they can do that they can they can let the mole man go away like get away i guess but the point being that like they aren't misleading each other because they know who each other are and they trust each other because every relationship is social that maybe that's part of it here is that like none of these relationships are not social they're all social they're all related to how people care about each other and the only unsocial relationships are Either someone's being conned or they're being mind controlled, um, and so the so the, so the villain reads him as you are trying to make up for the fact that your father isn't here and you're being a child, but the hero might read it as you're putting a lot of trust in some people who you really shouldn't put trust in them because you don't know what they're up to, and you're saying this stuff. You're going out there and you're saying, let's make superheroes great again. Let's put all the world leaders on a boat. You know, let's let's like set up a giant video screen at a time when somebody using video screens is terrorizing the entire population. (laughs) Right. Like, let's have all the world leaders stare at it at the same time. Um, And and by the way, like, I have no idea who I work for. (laughs) And and that's the problem is that you don't know who you work for. And um, and and maybe and that's that's maybe this is more of an artisan approach. Because the plot that this connects to, if and if you, you by all means hop on this too, but if you want to pivot, I would say that this connects to the parenting plot, the like how do the like we need to talk about Jack Jack plot, right? Mm. Like, <laughs> 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 which is like, uh, oh man, Tilda Swinton yeah. is such a genius. <laughs> But the, yeah, I mean, it's. I was thinking. I was thinking about this. I was trying to like to to you know um, come up with one one totalizing meaning and answer to the Incredibles two after which the film will wink out of existence because I've solved it. But the 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 I think it's it, it's interesting to talk about interiority where you're, when your power uh, when when your personality is defined by your suit, 
right? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's something like uh, it's something that the sun says, right? Like it defines me. That's it defines who I am. And it's like what 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 did you say? It's like oh, I, it's something I I heard on TV, you know. Um, that like the the if it, the the problem with Screenslaver or the 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 problem with the sister uh, is that she's not she is wearing a different suit than what she actually is you know mm. she should be she should be uh she should be dressed differently she should be wearing the uh you know the the bug mask or or whatever that was the weird yeah the, the ghost recon outfit yeah exactly right. <laughs> gas mask look and real real uh you know, steampunk looking kind of thing. Um, yeah, that there's, there's, uh, hmm. but, but to add to that, just to add one note to that, it's really interesting that the clothes that define who he is, he has them because he went to somebody he trusts or his parents went to somebody he trusts who knows him well and who reflected back to him the suit that he's supposed to wear. Right. That it's not just like clothes that he picked off the rack. These are like custom made by somebody who knows you intimately. Yeah, there's and who's an and artist. The, right, yeah. and it's hard. That's a hard task to do because because she's an artist, and it's like, um, the, but that alignment, right? Like that that alignment is important. And when when that's misaligned, you end up if you're the sort of people who person who, uh, yeah, I I shouldn't say judge a book by its cover because it's actually positive as being a good thing in the movie. If you take people at face value, right? If you do what Oprah recommends, and when people tell you who they are believe them um the it's difficult to you never should have trusted me ned stark that was the first thing i said <laughs> right it's difficult it's difficult to be a ned stark in a you know i don't know in a in a world of of cheryl sandbergs or whatever i, I forget the character's name <laughs> while we're talking about the clothes uh really mapping onto the identities of the characters let's not forget of course that um the mom right briefly gets a new suit um, I think which is like supposed to be retro, uh, retro throwback to her old suit, um, which is just uh, completely poo pooed by Edna Mode, right? Um, who had made the bespoke suits, and that, that's you know her period while she's working for um, you know the the, the media uh, brother sister combo, and uh, is doing these missions that are actually some slightly more distractions um, rather than something core to uh, the central mission of the movie, which is family, right? I like, yeah, I mean, I like. Yeah, I mean, she's away from her. She's separated from her family. She's not being true to herself. I, I, I think it's being portrayed in that way, but it's kind of not also right because. Well, yes, yeah, so, is we're right. supposed to celebrate that she's self-actualizing and Cheryl Sandberg and leaning in, and we're kind of like, oh, the the, the dad, like, ha, ha, you know, he has to learn, finally learn how to actually be a parent and, and take not, care of his kids. Didn't you find his? I don't know. I I felt like there was something. You know, it's it's funny if you're if you're an overthinking it member, which you can become at, at overthinkingit.com slash join. Uh, at, at at you know certain levels of the membership, you get access to the digital library, and we do the question of the week segment for members only now, and you can download them and and listen to them. And we talked about Bao, the short film, and we talked about the family dynamics in in Bao. And Pete, you kind of identified them as being very honest. I felt like it. It actually was a little bit brave to give that much voice to Mr. Incredible's dissatisfaction at at taking on the domestic responsibilities and how he felt uh how how sort of tri- trivialized he felt how how I, i'm shying away from the word emasculated but I, maybe it's the the appropriate one how he felt like it was a suit that that didn't that didn't match him um and yet was outwardly committed to modern ideals about co-parenting right and that that but that like still it was humiliating for him to to have to do this to admit that he wasn't good in this area and that he needed help right and and he could he couldn't kind of punch his way uh out of his daughter's broken heart you know and that's that and how much rather than kind of just mouthing the platitudes which is which would have been one way to go and there's plenty of entertainment that does that without like really interrogating the human situation by by giving voice to it i felt like there was something um i don't know a lot more honest uh going on 
that really was a cut above what it could have been. But that's like the to me the the kind of the story of of this movie. I mean the the emotional family story of this movie was was sort of that story, right? It wasn't it wasn't that like mom was good or bad for self actualizing or that having a working mother is necessarily a, a good or a bad thing. It was about kind of connecting. It was about connecting dad, the sort of absent dad, into the family unit and into the kind of the reality of his kids' lives, right? Like, he, he literally doesn't know who his baby is, you know? And, and uh, it becomes clear. And he, he sort of knows it before, uh, before his wife does. And that's, you know, that's a, um, I don't know, that's a, an interesting arc, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's this is both. I think this was my favorite part of the movie was the and I might be biased, of course, because uh, Mr. Incredible is the character that I identify with the most as somebody who is uh, uh, likes to think of himself as burly, um, but uh, but also likes to think of himself as as past his prime a lot um, is, uh, is. And there's other things involving like uh, like arguing about driving cars, which is a big thing in the first Incredibles movie. But but uh, so I, I admit this may not this might be somewhat of a biased situation, but there 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 are moments in the Mr. Incredible tries to become a dad. And I think you you hit the nail on the head, Matt, when you talk about it being bringing him in and connecting him to his kids, that he's been on the outside and he doesn't see being with the family as actualizing for him. And it causes him pain because he doesn't see himself as this role. But then he comes into it. And the movie kind of takes it in both directions at once in a way that I wished it hadn't, though I maybe maybe in doing so it was being honest. But this idea that I felt like when Mr. Incredible stays up all night reading the math textbook so that he can wake up uh, Dash early in the morning and they can do his math homework together. I thought that was like a legitimately impressive, cool thing that he did. And I thought the movie was trying to portray it as such. Right. Like that. This is like an extraordinary act of parenting. Uh, that maybe he can do because he, you know, is a superhero uh, and he's trying to be a superhero parent. Uh, and that, that he, it's like saying, OK, in order for him to be a parent, he's going to have to be something other than just the replacement for his wife. He's going to have to figure out a way to do it in his own way, because that's kind of how these movies work. And he sort of gets there. But then there's the whole weird thing with the the boyfriends where that just fails. And then there's the part where he like keeps the manages to keep the baby somewhat under control. But it requires his constant intervention in a way that is just not sustainable over time. And so there's this weird moment where this responsibility gets taken away from him and handed to other people. And I don't know whether I, I want to read that or whether the movie is kind of like considered in interpretation, whether the movie is judging that he shouldn't be a parent, that he's a bad parent, that he's bad at these parenting skills and they should be handed to other people who have those talents. Or is it something else along the lines of he figured out that it's too much for one person to do by themselves? That like nobody should just, be parenting alone. Yeah, um, yeah. Just to backtrack, you're talking about the key moment where he hands off the baby to Edna Mode because I have no idea how to control this. You must help me with this. And Edna, who like straight off the bat is like, I don't like kids. I'm not maternal. Um, just falls totally in love with this child um, because of the powers, and then like right. goo goo gaga's, and then uh, takes care of the problem like that, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. weird. That is a very weird fork in this road in this movie, and I, I it's it, it's strange. It is. It is. It's because you can think of it like, oh, maybe Edna and the baby connect because the baby has this sort of open ended creativity and that Edna responds to that. Or maybe Edna appreciates the challenge of knowing the baby, which is something that the other people don't try to do. They don't try to understand the baby. They just try to care for it. Uh, they like the Mr. Incredible tries to sort of behaviorally reinforce the baby, but like doesn't up. Uh, function on the baby's level i don't know there's there's two mr incredible gets two assistants in in general in these movies and one of them is edna and one of them is lucius and i get the sense that a big part of why lucius is in these movies is to reflect that the uh, ongoing trend of parents only being friends with each other and not with anybody else outside of the context of their kids is like a bad thing that that adults should have friends and they should have friends outside of their marriage and that there has been a huge trend, in particular in American society, where 
parents do not have friends outside their marriage. And this puts strain on marriages and it puts strain on people psychologically and it's not making people happy. And so this is the whole you mentioned bowling alone already. Uh, you know, the, the famous work of uh, of kind of pop. Uh, popular social psychology, or I guess, what is it? Anthrop- anthropology? I don't know how you would describe it. Anthropological anthropological economics, maybe, is how you would like describe bowling alone. But this idea that the social capital of the adult group in the United States in particular has been waning since the mid-20th century as adults have withdrawn from association with, you, with each other and narrowed their association to their partners and their kids. Uh, and that social and also the workplace has declined as a place where people socialize uh, and and clubs and activities have declined where well activities have remained constant while clubs have declined like doing stuff although you could probably say that now with instagramming and everything it's a whole different dynamic but but the idea that mr incredible has lucius because it's good it's important for people to have yeah, friends gramming right? alone yeah exactly gramming alone <laughs> it's important for adults to have friends and that's why mr incredible has lucius but mr incredible has edna because uh, he does not have the emotional self-awareness to like look at his own self and understand like who he is and what he needs. And he needs that reflected back to him by some sort of genius. And his family does, too. Uh, and, and like like Edna knows that he wants to be a superhero again in a way that he can't even really face himself. And so so Edna, he goes to Edna because she sees him and he goes to Lucius because he associates with him. Um, right. But like. In, how do they interact in Incredibles 2 and where's the balance? It's really tricky because everybody is trying to deal with Jack-Jack, who's just this huge problem uh, and and just and uh, beautiful and amazing and, and delightful and just hilarious. Uh, his his interactions with Serial alone are Oscar-worthy. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm no one want, and no one wants him. Neither of the kids wants to babysit. Neither of the parents really has the, you know, has the the capacity to, you know, devote themselves to the kid in the way that that the kid clearly needs. And I mean, I think this is but it, this is a problem in parenting. And right. This is a problem in yeah. the kind of the American kind of high. Well, I should say. What, what I don't know where to locate it. Western, highly individualistic uh, motive of nuclear families, right? Like the the this wouldn't be a problem in a more communal social organization, you know, where like the whole the whole neighborhood or village or whatever sits down at like long tables every day. The the baby could get passed from adult to adult or or young adult to young adult, and everyone you know would put in the amount of energy that they have, and the the baby would be provided for. Its emotional needs would be provided for in that. um, in that manner with a you know with a, a a fresh a fresh pair of hands and a fresh heart like every uh you know every period of time and that that like it just doesn't work um i mean i think it just doesn't i think it doesn't work uh i mean it's funny it's a family movie but in in a lot of ways it's it's about how the family doesn't work you know uh it, how yeah. how it doesn't oh. pay, yeah 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 let's dig into the jack jack situation a little bit more He's an accident, right? Is this a directly addressed in the first movie? Because if it's not, yeah, then it it's like right there below the surface. It opens with them at Mount Airy Lodge <laughs> in the Poconos. And being like, all we had to bring was our love of everything and the prophylactics. Uh... forgot the prophylactics. <laughs> okay, so it's not, right? But but look at the age difference, right? The age difference between Violet and Dash is more understandable, but not between Dash and, and Jack-Jack, Right. So Jack Jack Jack's an accident, um, and he's a problem child, right? It, it's it's like he he's got behavioral issues. I mean, if you want to map this onto things that are more relatable to um, to everyday society to to to, to real life, uh, that is not so much of a stretch. Um, and so and so stretch, <laughs> uh, right? Uh, and so the dad. That's why the dad needs help, right? Um, it, it, that much is is, is pretty clear. Um, is is that that I, I feel pretty good about that. And so, but that then that, does that make Edna what like social services, like uh, you know the the, the autism no, no, counselor. No, she's an aunt. She's the aunt. She's like the family friend who who pitches in. I don't think it makes her social services. I don't think the baby's being taken away. Uh, but but I would add to this one big complaint that i had about this movie well not complaint complaint's a strong word but just and i, I mentioned it a little bit but just to put a little bit more on this complaint it's complaint been 14, in the sense of a lover's complaint right yeah it was for it's been 14 years since the last incredibles movie was made the last incredibles movie was largely informed or so i've read by brad bird's own experience he's the writer director 
he is more of an auteur of the Incredibles franchise than probably anybody else is of any other Disney franchise right now. Uh, you know, and other than maybe Robert Downey, you know, there maybe I guess Robert Downey Jr. Not even. Um, but here we have a situation where you know he's been parenting for now for 15 more years, and he's 15 years older, but the characters haven't aged, and. I think what you're identifying, Mark, is the perspective of an older parent seems to be baked into this movie. And it is, I almost wish that he were a grandparent in this movie. Like uh, if because it's 50, it's 14 years. You know, Olivia or was that her name? The invisible girl could have had oh, a baby Violet. by now. Violet, Violet, not Olivia, Violet could have had a baby by now. You sure, know, like she was, early, she was Yeah, she was barely adolescent or she was, I guess, this na- age in the last movie because it picks up the minute the, the old one ended with the underminer. But the, the uh, yeah, she could be 14 years older. She'd be 28 or something like that and could be starting a family. You know, it's not like Mr. Incredible has never been a dad of a baby before. It's just been a long time. And I think that that seems to be feeding into the dynamic of the character, but mm. isn't part of the story. But you're you're hitting the nail on the head, I think. Here, and you, I mean, I'm, I'm loving I'm loving this analysis from everybody. This is a this is really this is a podcast about family, guys. This is really what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, it's and, and, and it makes sense to say aunt, aunt, absolutely. But is this like a Star Trek solution to a uh, like? Um, uh, to a three men and a baby the, problem. 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 Three men and the baby problem. Right? Is it like the, it's a, it becomes a technological solution? Right? The suit and everything, as opposed to like a, the a getting some finding a way to have a more authentic emotional connection with the child. What does the suit even do? Like the suit. All, so the suit gives you an advanced warning of several seconds before the baby's power changes, and then the suit gives you the ability to extinguish the baby and feed it at all times. Uh, when it is on fire, but the suit does not seem to do all that much else. <laughs> like, like, and I, what I mean is that what seems to be being handed off is not necessarily just the suit, and this is part of where the movie's coherence falls apart. But an understanding of the baby, like, which they didn't have prior to getting the suit. I think. Uh, I mean, I don't know. How do you read that, guys? That like, what what do they have that they didn't have before? Once the baby is in the suit, other than just like a cotton candy fire extinguisher. Um, I guess the baby likes the suit. They have a, they have a slightly they have a slight addition, a slightly higher level of understanding. But again, like it doesn't um, doesn't carry through all the way because um, or at least they see it. There's no control. No, there's no sense of control at the end. Um, at the after the, the 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 final climactic action scene, the family's together having a laugh, and then the baby. You see the baby multiply. Again, it's like, ah, oh, we don't have this under control, really. But ah, it's great. We're but all uh, to me, the story of that of that shot was that the baby was connected with each of the members of the family and it multiplied so that it could be hugged by each one individually. Right? That's there... so beautiful. I wish that I'd oh. seen that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? That was like there was actually like a little tear that came to my eye because I thought oh. like, oh, God, there's like love in, in every like every direction in the molecule of that family has a covalent bond of love in it, you know, and that's why the baby that's sort of why the baby multiplies but that that like um and and it's not that wasn't a, a a trope of unruliness it was it was a trope of of uh connection and like kind of authentic relationship between um between all of them but the the yeah i mean i i think that like yeah, I think a kind of acceptance of the baby, right? Like the the idea of the connection between the cookie and the demon baby, right? Like being thwarted. It's because it, it's not random, right? There was a very clear story to the baby's powers, whether it was fighting the raccoon or whether it was, uh, you know, uh, getting getting frustrated by the lack of a cookie, and you know, and things like this, and that that or you know, kind of playing like, hey, laser eyes, pew 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 pew, which was a uh, great little detail. Um, but the, the thing that gets, that gets handed off is like the, the, the idea that like these, these drives are, are a response to the environment. These are, these are drives and emotions that are a response to the environment. They're not just kind of random. They're not just random behaviors, right? Like the baby is intelligible, right? The baby is a creature with, um, with the psychology that is that is comprehensible and that that can be engaged with, if not exactly reasoned with, that can be sort of managed and negotiated by the by the uh, the members of the family, and that like whereas in the first fight against the underminer, it's the baby's more or less a football, and like where you know everyone can't get rid of him, uh, Jack Jack, fast enough. In the last fight, it's almost like everyone needs him at a different time, you know, like he's being passed around because he's valuable rather than because he's he's 
carries a burden. And that's the story that the baby, that's the kind of the track that the baby follows over the course of the, over the course of this film. Right. Um, and that, uh, uh, you know, yeah. And there, there were a couple of moments like that, right? Like, uh, I don't know the, the, those things where, where people pull together or where, where they sort of people kind of need each other and take care of each other. Right. Like is, is, um, the, those things were always kind of touching to me. And this, the, the Incredibles two had, had a bunch of them because as the kids kind of individuate a little bit, um, you know, they become a little more independent, but like, uh, but also more, uh, they, they need the parents in the different ways. They, in different ways, they need each other in different ways, right? Like you still need help with, you know, uh, the kids getting, the son is getting smarter and he knows, um, he knows new math, right? He does the weird adding thing where they like round and then subtract and something like that. I, you know, not something if, if ever I have to rear children, it's not something I'm looking forward to having to relearn, but the, the, you know, he needs his dad's help with that stuff. You know, and the the uh, the daughter needs needs sympathy and understanding, and and sometimes to be left alone, right? Like uh, uh, sometimes nothing is the the best course of action, which must be a hard lesson for Mister Incredible to uh, to learn. Yeah, well, when we're talking about modes of codependency and, and cooperation that evolve over the course of this movie, we should also br- at least briefly talk about the other superheroes that they bring in. Um, because that creates an interesting new dynamic at the end, in particular, right, with the Void, who um, a, a chief among the other new superheroes really facilitates the Incredibles, the team to to, to win the day. Um, do they map onto some 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 sort of other family dynamic, or are they just uh, the friends, like so, society, like a slightly broader society? That uh, the Incredibles can live in. Yeah, I well, wish they'd cashed which, which people, out. Sorry, Void, Void and Brick yeah. and and Acid Reflux and Screech and and them. I <laughs> wish I wish they had cashed out the Void relationship uh, a little bit, right? Like I wish Void had 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 more of an arc and and sort of come into come into her own and in uh, in a slightly more interesting way. Like it would have been. The 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 sort of portal power, right? Like, is uh, that that would have been useful at the end if she were wielding it in kind of a masterful way, rather than in a in a sort of extremely anxious and um, uh, barely competent way, and and like you know being kind of welcomed into the uh, welcomed into the realm of of superheroes, the kind of the the journeyman or master superheroes. Um, I mean, I can already see it. The, the issue with Void is that. She's introduced as having a lot of adoration for Elastigirl. That's when we meet Void. She has this outpouring of kind of fangirl appreciation for Elastigirl. And she's called Void, right? And and she has holes, right? Which is like <laughs> emotional, right? On one hand, it's a little bit uncomfortable because she's also very – it's like very clearly like the team is very gendered. The the, uh, the the other team of superheroes is like very gendered, which is drawn out by the presence of Brick as sort of gender queer, and so the gender of every character is like very specific. But but more than that, it's that Void has a void, which is that she does not she does not like believe in herself. She she projects onto Elastigirl all the ideas of what she would want to be. And then she makes portals that other people pass through. So I would have loved to have seen a character development where Void learns that she can jump through her own portals rather than like, oh. than like, like, like Elastigirl can reach through the portal can reach out and punch somebody on the other side of the room. Void could do it, too. She just has to jump through her own portals rather than wait for somebody else to do it. That's just my first impression of the character is if if instead Void just gets mind controlled for like the whole rest of the movie and not even doesn't even really have much of a denouement other than just saying that she's sorry. Which is really, really rough because this is somebody who's pretty vulnerable in the way that she's introduced to us. And she is just like and she has a void and it's filled by evil. It's filled by the controller. You know, it's filled by the meme farm or whatever sort of like shady agent of technological influence is operating in this movie takes control of her. And uh, and that's that's a rough ending. As far as I'm concerned, she dies like that in the movie. Right. Like she she doesn't really get to come back. Which is because she's a major enough character and sympathetic enough in that introduction that there's there's mileage that's lost. Yeah, I guess. I mean, she's she's sort of helping Elastigirl get on the uh, get on the plane and stuff, right? So she's she's involved in that in that final battle. Why don't you just portal the boat into a different direction? 
<laughs> One would think that would work, right? right. Although that re- that actually recalls the first Incredibles movie. That could have been a fun callback. Because as you might remember, in the first Incredibles movie, they're flying in a plane that's being attacked by missiles. And, and Elastigirl starts yelling at Violet and tells Violet to create a force field around the entire plane. This is, of course, after she has been telling Violet for her entire life never to use her superpowers. So Violet becomes extremely distressed because her mom is yelling at her to do the thing that her mom was yelling at her before not to do. Can't do it. Plane gets destroyed. Uh, and, and the mom has to kind of later come to terms with what she's been doing and apologize. Uh, but you could have a scene in this movie where she's yelling at, at Void to, like, create a giant portal for the boat to go through. And she can't do it because she's nervous. Uh, and that could re- that could call back the first movie or maybe she can do it. I don't know. Um, but this idea of like, is she kind of a surrogate mother figure? How capable is she? Let's also face the fact that there probably was some way to move that boat with all the superpowers that were at everybody's yeah. disposal. Although I like the idea that it hit an iceberg and that was kind of a fun little nod. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's a Titanic solution to a speed two problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, near, far, wherever you are, I believe that this podcast will go on, uh, but not anymore this week. So thanks very much for listening, and thanks very much to Pete and Mark for discussing The Incredibles 2 with me. We'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve. Oh, my God.